0: Welcome to Gardening Coast to Coast. My name is Gary Polarczyk. I have a YouTube channel called The Rusted Garden Homestead. My garden's on the East Coast in the state of Maryland.
1: Hi, I'm Callie Kim, and I'm gardening from beautiful, sunny Southern California. And I have a YouTube channel called Callie Kim Garden and Home DIY. And I like to teach people how to grow their gardens in a quick, simple, inexpensive way that fits into your busy lifestyle. Well, Gary, how was your week in the garden this week?
0: Uh, This week has been great. So uh, we had a cool spell finally. We had the 85 degree weather that uh, rolled in for actually my son came down to visit with his girlfriend, which was really nice. We had four days, 85 or less degree temperatures, 60 at night, perfect for a fire. The garden actually came back to life. All the stuff that was beat up by heat after a couple of days seemed to really come back. So I'm actually keeping some of the tomato plants. In place, but I'm really in the process of still kind of pulling out all those summer crops and getting in the cool weather crops.
1: Well, that's great. Sounds like it was a great week. Kind of the opposite here in California. We've had a coolish kind of summer, like in the 80s, and we actually got hit with a heat wave last week. So uh, up the shade cloth one. it was like near triple digit temperatures, and I did end up actually pulling out several plants that got taken over by spider mites. But you know what? It's really actually kind of nice to leave some empty spots because I want to get some cool other vegetables popped in there over the next you know month to six weeks or so. And one of the
0: things we were talking about is the next podcast is going to be kind of diving deeper into fall gardening and also putting your beds to rest for the fall or kind of refreshing them. So keeping those open beds, maybe you'll use them later in your zone or on the West Coast, or maybe put them to sleep like
1: in my zone until spring. That's right. And it's actually kind of nice to kind of scale back just a little bit and just kind of take a little bit of a break before we get the next round of fall vegetables here in Southern California. So all in all, a pretty good week and uh, ready to move on to some new vegetables.
0: So today's topic is questions and answers. So I think we have, you know, 15 or 20 questions from people that are listening to the podcast, follow us on YouTube. Um, And I'm kind of really excited about this because people ask a lot of really good questions. Um, I do comment a lot of times on, you know, the YouTube channel, but I think it'd be nice to kind of dive in deeper with both of us answering the questions. And If you are interested in advertising on our podcast, Gardening Coast to Coast, please just leave an email at gardeningcoasttocoast.net.
1: That's right. And I think, Gary, I just wanted to mention, again, what is Gardening Coast to Coast? Mm. And really, it's all about, and this involves our viewers and their questions and answers, it's really all about helping people all over the world have a better garden, learn some tips and tricks along the way. And with you in Maryland, and me on the West Coast in California, we can really bring different tips from different growing climates and help people from all over the world. So it's really been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it.
0: Let's start with a question from Cece, who I know follows both of her channels and right. I feel like, uh, I know her. So hello, CC. Um, she's always commenting. So she leaves a pretty good question, which <laughs> I think I'm going to disappoint her with the answer. This one may be, uh, impossible, but can you recommend any techniques for maximizing sunlight when it's limited due to trees, buildings, etc.? So maybe I'll just punt that one to you and <laughs> let you answer <laughs> well-
1: We actually have a lot of tree issues in our garden. We're always fighting the shade. So um, I think I can kind of give her a good feel for this. And we're also in the wintertime, our house shades most of our garden. Our house is on the north. I mean, our garden is on the north side of our house. So we are constantly trimming trees to, to maximize the sun. So that's one thing you can look at if you can, unless they're your neighbor's trees, that might be a little bit hard. But we did actually take out several trees last year so that I could grow more vegetables on our hill area of our garden. So that's the first thing to do. I think the second thing really is to plant vegetables that grow well in partial shade or partial sun, whichever way you want to look at it, and really try and just maximize those spaces that aren't going to be full sun. So I would love to have a full sun like you do, Gary. But the reality is I'm growing in an urban environment. So it's just not possible. So I grow a lot of things in the shady areas, um, like some herbs, uh, greens in the summertime, kale chard in the summer, in the winter. It's all about the lettuces um, and the quarter vegetables that will take, uh, you know, less hours of sunlight and also grow smaller varieties. Like the cherry tomatoes don't require as much sunlight to ripen and uh, other smaller varieties of vegetables that will grow well in the shade and you can still get some harvest out of them.
0: And yeah. And I mean, I'm blessed having my two acres. Um, well, actually, I think I mentioned this before, but when we bought the property, the first thing I would look at is how the sun would track on the property. And then I looked at the house. While my wife was checking out the house, I was in the backyard, <laughs> making sure the trees and the buildings were in the way. So if you are just starting, that's one thing you want to do, kind of looking backwards is imagine the garden. If you're looking in the winter, um, when um, imagine the trees having leaves on them. Imagine how the shadows would fall. That can help too. Um, The other thing I would say is, you know, if you're, gardening in containers, sometimes putting wheels on them and just moving them. I know it's a pain if you have a smaller space and less containers, you can rotate them around and move them to where the sun is. Um, But it takes a lot of work to really try and maximize, you know, the sun when you just don't have a lot.
1: It does, but it definitely can be done with a little bit of trial and error. So Cece, thanks a lot for your question. Really appreciate it. And make sure you let us know how it goes. Well, our next question comes from Marilyn. And Marilyn asks, I want to try and compost in a compost bag that I bought since last year. Do you think I can put some food scraps like banana peels? Also, can I still plant sunflowers in the fall? I'm here in Southern California. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Marilyn, for uh, for writing in. And Gary, did you want to take a stab at that one first?
0: So I'm going to say in Southern California, even though I'm in Maryland, that you can still grow sunflowers. Um, definitely. I mean, they're actually, so in my garden, I'm in Maryland and we get, you know, the full four seasons. However, all the sunflowers that are in my beds have come from plants that have fallen or birds that have dropped seed. And they actually start coming up in, I want to say April when we're still getting frosts and the smaller sunflower seed, plants the seedlings actually can take a frost so you can definitely grow them in southern california they're a lot more hardy than we might think
1: definitely they come up pretty early here and i the same thing going on that you do all the volunteers and those volunteers really seem to be the strongest plants in the garden so it's always fun to see them popping up but a lot of my early sunflowers um, that came up are now starting to die out. So I actually planted a second wave. So I would highly recommend if you're in Southern California, definitely get some seeds, some more seeds started, because we still do have a couple months of warm weather. And it's really fun to see the little new seedlings emerge when the old ones are dying off. And speaking of sunflowers, I really like to leave the stalks in the ground until they dry up because then I cut them out and use them for trellises for next year. So it's kind of a fun thing to do and the birds always love the sunflower heads. I put them in my bird feeders. So yeah, definitely get somewhere planted in California.
0: And in a compost bag, you can really put anything in there. So you certainly can put in um, banana peels, um, anything that you want. The whole key to composting in containers or in bags is you just want it to stay moist so that the microbiology can break it down. And you want to keep adding in your food scraps, greens like grass, if you can throw in leaves or browns or even grass that's green is a green. It has the nitrogen. If you let grass dry out and turn brown, it becomes a carbon or a brown. You just want to have a combination of different things in there just so the process continues to break down. You don't have to go for, like, superheated hot compost and have this break down in four to six weeks. You can just throw it in there, keep it moist, good mix of things, and, you know, by the end of the summer, you should have compost.
1: Yeah, that's actually how I compost is in a big, huge compost sack. I think it's about 100 gallons. And that's pretty much what I do. Um, If I don't have a lot of materials collected, I just add to it over time. And it becomes a cold compost pile. But a couple of times I have been able to collect quite a bit. I save the food scraps in the freezer, just collect a big pile of leaves, and then throw it in there and mix it all together to get it nice and big because a hot compost pile needs to be about three feet tall. And it's, it is pretty cool when you go out there after a couple of days and you see all the steam coming off of the compost and then you just mix it in and it breaks down pretty quickly. But yeah, pretty much anything goes as far as that, although I don't like to put the diseased plants or, um, plants that have a lot of bugs on them. So pretty much keep it disease free that way, but it's uh, a great way to have that free black garden gold to put on your plants. And that,
0: I mean, that's a good point too. There's debate on whether or not you should use, um, diseased or, or, plants that have insects on there. Now I say, (laughs) go ahead and compost it. For the idea being, um, I don't think one way is right, you know, do what you're most comfortable with. Uh, But a lot of these diseases and insects want to stay on living plants or they overwinter in plants right next to your tomato plants if you pull them out. So I kind of just talk about the diseases are going to show up anyway. Um, If you feel better about You know, trashing them and getting rid of them, go ahead. But these diseases and insects, um, you're going to get them in your garden. It's not a failure on your part, is the point that I want to stress. That if you get those problems, um, you could be doing the best you can do. You're still going to get them. So don't overstress about plants that get sick or insects that show up in your garden. That's right. Brandon wrote, and I I just read the question. I I could have written this uh, because I have the same problem. What are some tips for keeping a good garden journal? After a while, I feel myself forgetting or getting so focused on the garden work itself that I forget to document. I know it's great practice. I want to get better. Any pointers? Would be appreciated. So I don't know if I am the best role model for that. I I think you
1: are, Garrett. I (laughs) keep a garden journal, so you're the one to answer this one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, but yeah, but it's more in you know, I can preach it. I don't know if my practice is so good. So I have, I probably have three or four journals around the house. So um, anyway, what worked best for me to have an improved um, garden journal is to put it in a place that I am sitting or at. Regularly each day, so that I'm not thinking about you know running out into the garden and then I have to journal something. It's like when I go back in, getting a drink, um, sitting down after the day. Where's the journal? Is it next to my um, iPad or something like that? You know, next to my bed, and then just jot a few things down. The other thing is, is don't feel like you have to overwrite or write a paragraph. You know, date, plant, issue, um, jot it down. It will really help. I also have the added benefit too. Um, that my uh, youtube videos count as a journal so if i'm documenting that i I end up getting a lot done there but that's much much harder than doing a video journal is much much harder than a written journal
1: okay i don't feel so bad because i actually have that journal that you gave me that you have on your seed shop which is kind of nice and i have to say maybe three or four times this summer i've written down like okay neem oil on this day to which area (laughs) of the garden so i don't feel so guilty anymore so uh, yeah it's a good start (laughs) yeah so Okay, so our next question comes from me, myself, and I. And this is a really good question. What should be tilled into last year's raised bed soil? How late can we plant garlic bulbs? Second part there. And what additive should we put in the soil to be used over winter?
0: So, I mean, that'll be perfect for the next podcast. We'll be talking a lot about what you can put into your containers and your beds to kind of refresh the soil. But there's so much you can put in there. Um, let me take part of this now. Um, you use the word tilled, which I think is perfectly fine. There's a lot out there that says you should have a no-till garden. You should just put compost on top. Don't dig or turn your garden. And it gets really confusing to people. So I don't think the question so much about tilling. You can certainly do that if you want. The whole idea is that you're just trying to get um, the amendments into the top four to six inches of your soil. So you can certainly go with any kind of compost that you have. Um, If you're doing this from, let's say you're putting it in fall, you're not going to touch it for four or five months. You could put in manures, uh, compost that's not fully broken down. You can put in, uh, we have a product in Maryland called uh, leaf mold that the municipal centers make. You could put that down. There's just a whole lot. I even put down alfalfa pellets that you get at feed shops and let them break down. On the surface, and you know, work that into the top four six inches. Come the spring, so there's a lot that you can put in there.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much, and I think that's one way that people do get kind of overwhelmed. And we talked about in our first episode about really taking the anxiety out of gardening, not getting too stressed. So, I mean, I like to keep it pretty basic. I like to try and find a lot of free things to add. So, compost is one of those because I make it myself. Another thing that I like to add a lot is um, shredded leaves. So once the fall winds come here in California, a lot of the leaves blow off the trees. And then I have neighbors that collect them for me, collect them for my yard. And then pretty much over the wintertime, that's what I add to the top of my garden beds. And then as it rains, hopefully here in California, the leaves break down and really add those good nutrients to the garden beds. So when you come time for spring planting, or you plant your next crop, Uh, the beds are already kind of enriched and the leaves really bring in the worms like crazy. So, and they help kind of loosen up the soil. So that's one good thing that's free and easy to add to your garden beds. The other thing I'm going to mention real quick is worm castings. It's probably one of the things I add to my garden beds every single year. And it really, again, helps um, break up the soil, brings in the soil life, you know, the microbiology and everything, increases the worms in the soil. And it's just a great, additive to till into your raised beds or sprinkle over the top or in your planting holes. So I've really seen a big difference since I started doing that in my garden.
0: Also come fall, if you check out the big box stores, um, a lot of the granular fertilizers go on sale. So they may be, you know, three, five pounds for typically $10, $12. They can sometimes go on sale for two bucks. So you can pick up any organic granular fertilizer and just spread that down across the top of your soil too. That's a great amendment. Um, and getting it on sale is even better because I think they're a little bit overpriced. But if you start looking now, um, you're going to find sales, especially with the new year coming in a couple of months. Now, I know in California we always say, people, or people write actually when they come in, that they don't go on sale there. Here in, Mar- <laughs> in Maryland they do because the winter comes and the winter products come in. So maybe that's only an East Coast benefit. But look for, at least on the East Coast, for those products on sale. That's right. He, it's a great idea. And he did ask about garlic bulbs. So I don't you know, I think garlic grows differently in California, we grow the hardneck garlic here. And I can put it in um, really October, November, maybe the beginning of December, the whole key with garlic here is that you want it about two inches down so it doesn't freeze solid. So two inches is deep enough, three inches if you want. And you don't want it to grow so much that you get a big shoot coming out of, you know, a couple inches is fine, but you just want that garlic um, clove actually to start rooting and getting established and be ready come the spring so that it takes off and the garlic head or bulb will develop
1: yeah, it's actually a whole different animal here in California because we have a lot of heat in the winter time. So I never have been real successful at getting at getting the large garlic bulbs bulbs. yeah, the garlic bulbs because um, you know they really need that period of winter dormancy to to grow. So typically I'll plant my garlic in containers because I have a lot better luck there. The soil's nice and loose. and I'll usually plant them around November, December. They may shoot up some shoots, um, you know, during the wintertime, then they'll, you know, kind of die back a little bit and then really take off once the warm weather hits. But I really have to mulch my garlic heavily in my containers to keep it cool enough here in California in the wintertime, and then usually harvest around June or July. So a little bit different. I've actually tried um, putting my garlic uh, bulbs in the refrigerator for like a couple of weeks to kind of help start that you know dormancy period right and honestly i haven't really seen a whole lot of difference so (laughs) we'll have to keep uh, experimenting with that
0: yeah experiments are good and it's interesting because the one thing that you can do on the east coast or it gets colder is we would put mulch down to keep them warmer so you can use mulch in many ways but mulch is a great regulator of temperature so it keeps soil um, from freezing it also can keep soil from overheating so if you don't mulch Um, I highly recommend it because a lot of people don't know it's the roots that really determine sometimes what plants do, if they're going to bolt or if they're going to grow or or do different things. So if you keep that uh, mulch down, keeps the soil moist, keeps the soil cool, and your plants will thrive and do better. Sally wrote a a similar question. She said, I want to grow garlic in Denver, uh, Colorado in containers. Is it possible? If so, how? Suggestions for varieties. Well, what do you know about
1: I'm trying to remember which variety I grew last time in containers. um, And the name escapes me I know it was a variety from Baker Creek seed, I believe. But I've also grabbed the organic garlic from the grocery store. And of course, you never really know what that variety is. But um, yeah, it does work great in containers. It's probably a little bit different in Denver, because you know, you get the cold temperatures there. But basically, you don't want to plant them too close in containers. So I think you mentioned, Gary, plant them a couple inches down. And then usually I spread them apart, maybe, you know, probably three or four inches in my container. So you can grow a few in a small container, I'd say maybe at least a 10 to 12 inch deep container. Um, So a five gallon, if it's deep enough, and then, you know, a 10 or 20 gallon, you can grow, um, you know, a little bit more.
0: And I, this is why I would encourage you you to experiment, Sally, is that I I don't know for sure. If your container freezes solid, it could be an issue with the garlic, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be surprised. So I would, you know, get a good size container, do half, maybe four inches deep another half maybe six inches deep something just as an experiment um, and see and see what happens the worst cases they don't grow or they may not come up and maybe start them earlier in the spring and you still can have success too so you wouldn't be overwintering your garlic you're just going to be planting it earlier in the spring and letting it you know start coming to life when it's starting to warm up a little bit
1: and as far as varieties I think we talked on the last episode about asking around at your local like family owned garden centers, they may be able to help you out with some varieties that work really well in your area. Okay, so our next question comes from Tom. And Tom asks, back to Eden recommends using wood chips to mulch a garden, what is the best place to get wood chips without introducing new random weeds? And if you all aren't aren't familiar with the back to Eden method, that's basically just a gardening method. And again, there's lots of different ways to do things where they cover the soil on their gar on the top of their garden beds, I think maybe with three or four inches of wood chips. So, um, you know, it's a whole different method that people like to use. Now, I did actually give that a try one year and grab some wood chips from a local, like free wood chip service. And it really honestly did not work out too well for me because I think there were a lot of wood chips in there that weren't so good for the garden, some diseases. So I ended up removing them after a couple of years. Uh, and I really, at this t- point in time, primarily use wood chips on my pathways. But Gear, I know you use a lot of wood chips in your garden and even planted straight in wood chips. Mm-hmm. So how's that worked out for you?
0: So, there's a couple of things. So there's no way really not to get weed seeds. Um, but you're not going to get that many in wood chips. It's usually uh, bushes and trees that are ground up anyway, so you're not going to have a whole lot of weed seeds in there. I wouldn't worry worry too much about that. What I would be concerned about is the size of the wood chips. So, if you have wood chips that are like an inch, two inches, they're not going to work the best for sort of a back to Eden garden because they do still need to break down over time. And the bigger wood chips just take forever to break down. They will also pull nitrogen from your plant. And then it could be what happened with, with your um, experiment. So the finer the wood chips, the better, and you can actually pile them on, um, some things people don't know about the back to Eden method too, is is sometimes they have to move the wood chips to the side and put earth into the planting area too. But the whole idea is that the wood chips over time decay and break down and slowly feed your garden. It becomes a great way to nourish your whole garden. You can get shredded hardwood. Um, and that's more like fine fibers. I've grown almost directly in that. I do have to add in a lot of nitrogen and stuff like that. That was an experiment, but the more, or let's say it the right way, the finer the wood chips the better your plants will grow. And if you're using wood chips and growing plants in them, if they're struggling, you want to give them fish emulsion or a water soluble that has more nitrogen to really help them out because your wood does take nitrogen from your plant to help with the decaying process.
1: And then you definitely don't want to mix the wood chips into your soil. I mean, it's, you know, it breaks down somewhat, but yeah, when you do mix them in, that definitely does help or deplete the soil of nitrogen. So what you want to do too is like pull them aside when you, you know, go to plant your next crop. I think one of the big advantages too of the back to Eden garden method from what I've, from what I understand is it really does help cut down on weeds because the weeds that do grow are loose and you can pull them right out. Although you can accomplish the same thing through other types of mulch, like shredded leaves or pine needles or straw, or just something that you cover the soil with, so your soil doesn't get real baked and uh, hard packed.
0: And you made a really good point. I want to stress because some people might have missed it. Uh, wood chips, top two inches, one inch on your soil is perfectly fine because you would move them away, and your roots are going to grow into earth. So you can use wood chips. Um, For mulch, if you like you were saying if you mix those wood chips into the top four inches of your soil So you have the soil and wood chips mixed together. That's when the wood really starts pulling nitrogen and challenging your plants. So a question I get a lot is can I put wood chips on top of my soil and the answer is yes, you can use it as mulch So sister Marcel's backyard garden, she says I'm always unsure how to properly feed root vegetables uh, both seedlings and established plants So again, this is probably goes to, you know, my statement, there's a thousand ways to have a vegetable garden. So it's possible that you have great soil and things are set up really well that you don't need to feed them. So you kind of start with that. Is your bed set up nicely? It has a good amount of phosphorus and potassium and nitrogen in there. And how do you know that? Well, if you're throwing in granular fertilizer or you're adding in compost most of the time, your, your garden's pretty good. You could get into all this kind of soil testing and stuff like that. I only recommend that if your garden's not thriving and you have an issue, get a soil test because it varies so much. Um, but if you want to keep it simple, um, I take any granular organic fertilizer somewhere around a five, five, five NPK up or down a few numbers. I go to the store. It might be rose, granular fertilizer. It might be leafy green fertilizer. It might be tomato fertilizer. It doesn't matter. The ingredients are the same. Scatter that down, work it into the top couple of inches, plant. um, And then I go back to the fish emulsion and, you know, give them a drink of that in the beginning. And that usually works out pretty well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion, Gary. And as they go throughout their, you know, their life cycle, what I tend to do is back off on the higher nitrogen fertilizer, because what I found is that, That will grow the leafy greens above the soil rather than growing more of the roots underneath the soil, which is what you want. So what I like to do is really give them uh, the Vermisteria worm tea because that's a low NPK. And again, it just really helps with the health of the plant you know, helps the plant kind of, you know, have that good bacteria so it can fend off the pests and diseases, but it won't give such a high burst of nitrogen that you get tons of leafy growth and not much root growth.
0: And uh, the whole kind of name of the game for gardening is slow and steady compost. Um, I'd like to point out is well below a 1, 1, N, P and K, just like the worm casting tea. Um, you will read that, you know, sometimes people add in more phosphorus, For root crops, for bulb development, you can do that if you want to, like a handful of bone meal scattered across the top that's higher in phosphorus. But that's not a must, you don't have to do that.
1: And I think one thing too, that people do get frustrated about is, you know, asking the question I get a lot is why aren't my root vegetables Forming roots, and for us here in California, that's usually an issue because we get a lot of heat at random times, you know, throughout the cool weather growing season. And when that happens, the root vegetables, you know, do tend to grow a lot more leafy greens and not, uh, you know, root up as quickly. So that could be one issue as well that you might want to look at.
0: So, and that's a good example. Uh, I mean, that's a good statement because I've been talking about getting your fall crops into the garden. So. So let's just say middle of August, because I can't remember, but I put radishes in and that warm spell came for seven days or so. So those radishes, same seeds that I planted in the spring, great bulbs. They're just really leafy. There's no bulb formed. And that's because of the heat came in, warmed up the root zone, everything grew quickly, and they're just not you know good. I'm going to use the uh, leafy greens. I'm going to saute them. I'll eat them that way. Um, but I've already put in another round of radishes. So sometimes it could be temperature related. If you're not getting that bowl.
1: That's right. And they do grow well in containers too. So that might be one thing you might want to try is growing them in some containers and then putting them in, you know, a partial shaded area so that you don't get those big, huge bursts of heat on your root vegetables. Okay. So our next question is from Practical Gardening. And this is actually a really good one for you, Gary, because I don't have this issue here. What have been the best ways you have been able to deal with deer? I don't want a tall fence. Are there ways to make a shorter fence more effective?
0: So the answer is yes. Um, I have a taller fence. So the fence I have is, it's actually eight foot posts. Um, The fence itself is four feet high. And if I was going to need more, because I thought maybe I'd have deer jumping in, um, I was going to use the top of the eight-foot post to put thin wire through there just to create another barrier. So that being said, deer don't want to jump a fence four feet if they're going to land on a space where they might break their leg, just like a person. So if you have your beds along the inside of the fence, they don't have a clear space to jump, you may be able to get away with a smaller fence. They don't want, unless they're starving, they don't want to risk being hurt. They also have a hard time seeing sometimes. So if they're not sure what's on that end, they're not going to jump. Outside my garden, in my um, no-dig garden, I have maybe, I don't know what it is, 10 by 16 foot space. I have just six foot T posts in the four corners, and I put um, just a black kind of cloth line, three levels, uh, top of the post, middle of the post, bottom towards the ground, and little bells on there. And that has actually kept the deer out. The tomatoes that grow outside of that sometimes get eaten by the deer, but no deer has gone into that. And it's kind of cool because of the black cloth or the black clothesline, you can't really see from a distance. So to the people walking by, it kind of looks open.
1: Wow. That's pretty cool. And that's a really you know cost-effective solution if you don't have the budget for a big, tall fence. And I know when we were visiting you back in July, one of the things that Jerry and I enjoyed the most was going out in the evenings and watching the deer cross your property. So, I mean, it was just so beautiful. I think you even had it like a, a yeah, doe and a couple of fawns there that yep. live on your property.
0: Yeah. And they're definitely there. So I can say, you know, crowding the inside of the fence line works deer. Don't jump in there. Don't leave the gate open. I've done that. And the deer have gone in. Um, and you can, I don't know if I have a specific video on the fence with the T posts and the black uh, clothing line, but you can look up no dig garden on my YouTube channel, the rusted garden homestead, and you'll see the design right there. All right. So I don't know how to say this name. So can you help me out?
1: Sure, I think it's anupama. Sorry if we didn't say that correctly, (laughs) but thanks for your question. Sure. Peppers
0: uh, peppers are always a challenge for me uh, to grow both sweet and hot. What should I do to have a a successful crop? So... This would be great if we were doing a Zoom session and she or he were here, so that I could ask more questions. So let's assume you have other plants growing well. Um, you've got the warmer temperatures. Um, peppers do don't like to be sitting in really wet soil. So in a container or a raised bed, they tend to do better. Um, you want to give them a basic granular fertilizer to start. Really set up the soil with you know any again organic granular around a five five five. After they're growing and established, um, cut back on the nitrogen. So for the first couple of months, I am giving them a five-one-one fish fertilizer um, that helps them get established, and then I kind of just let them go. You know, I may put on some compost for top dressing, but I spend more time setting them up with fertilizers in the beginning, and then letting them go when they're you know halfway through their, their growth period.
1: I think that's a really good point, Gary, is that the beginning of peppers are really important. Um, You know, they like to be germinated with heat, some type of a heat mat underneath. And I think we have a question about that a little bit later. Uh, but one mistake I've made... Uh, A while back is I put them out too early in the garden, they don't like the cold nights. So you know, if they get off to a bad start, and they get stunted, then you might kind of struggle with them throughout the growing season. So they really like temperatures in the mid 60s. So I actually tend to wait a little bit later to put my peppers out than a lot of my other vegetables. Because once you get them out there, and the sun is nice and warm, they have the nice warm nights lot of sunshine during the day attempts in the seventies on up into the nineties and you get them that good feeding early in the season, like you talked about Gary, then they are going to take off and ho- hopefully grow you some really good peppers, but definitely don't get them put it out to get them put out too early.
0: Yeah. The heat does make a difference. And it's the same for tomatoes. If you put them in too early, um, they may look purple. They may look stunted. Um, they just don't like cold feet. So you are better off, as you said, to wait till the warmth comes and they will they will take off. Today's podcast is sponsored by, and we are again open to sponsors as we get established over time. So please just send us an email to gardeningcoasttocoast.net. But today the uh, <laughs> podcast is sponsored by our seed chops. I have a seed chop at therustedgarden.com. Um, You can certainly pick up seeds, uh, seed starting supplies, fabric pots, peppermint oil, neem oil, all kinds of different things.
1: And my seed shop is at CallieKimGardeninHome.com. And one thing special that uh, about my seed shop is that I have Callie Kim seed collections. And I really develop those for busy people or new people to gardening, where you go to the seed store and you have absolutely no idea how to get started. So the seed collections are designed by type of vegetable or growing season. So for example, right now during fall gardening, you can pick up a fall garden seed collection. It has 13 varieties of cool weather vegetables, and you're pretty much all set to grow your fall garden. And I also carry fabric containers and my books.
0: And I know I'd like to say that you are, uh, you've doubled me in writing books. I do have a book, The Modern Homestead Garden, but you have your second book coming out.
1: That's right. Uh, My second book is called Raised Bed Gardening. So it's all about uh, how to grow a raised bed garden from start to finish, primarily focused on people who have never grown in raised beds before. So, um, you know, you pretty much have everything you need to know in there from, you know, uh, making your own soil, very simple raised bed construction plans, trellising systems, and then a lot of um, garden layout plans with easy vegetables that you can grow in raised beds. So our question earlier on raised beds that we had um, would be a perfect place to find that information is in my raised bed gardening book coming out in the spring of 2022.
0: And hopefully it makes it on time with all the right. shipping container issues and all kinds of stuff going.
1: Yep, on. that's for sure.
0: So I mentioned earlier that the uh, first round of my radishes have died out. So I'm currently planning second round of radishes and my cool weather crops. Um, again, the cool weather crops enjoy, you know, the cooler temperatures. And one thing of interest is I have two four by eight raised beds right next to each other. And they both would get the same amount of sun, the way that my sun tracks. And I have broccoli in the left bed, let's just say, and broccoli in the right side of the bed. And I have a cattle panel arch over the bed on the right, and it still has cherry tomatoes growing up there. It creates wonderful shade that falls on that 4 by 8 raised bed where the broccoli is, keeps the soil at least 10 degrees cooler, and that broccoli is almost three times the size as the broccoli in the other bed that's in full sun the whole time. And the whole key with your cool weather crops and kind of, yeah, I'll be doing a video on that, but the cooler soil really makes a huge difference. So you could use shade cloth if you're in um, the northeastern Maryland zone seven right now to get your cool weather crops established better.
1: That's right. That's a great suggestion. And I actually planted some uh, mustard greens, which are a cool weather green and some radishes a couple of weeks ago. And then we got hit with the heat wave, but I planted it in an area that is pretty much mostly shaded all day and it's coming up and it's growing, it's growing slowly, but it's definitely still growing. So, you know, in those hot weather climates, pick those shady areas of your garden, pop in some cool weather seeds. And, you know, once the weather cools off, they're going to start to take off. And then you can always plant a fresh new round, you know, if you get hit by a heat wave and they don't do so well either.
0: You have plenty of time. That's right. You were saying you had spider mites. Did you get to spray peppermint oil on those or do anything with that? Or were they just too far gone by the time? Um,
1: The couple plants I pulled out were really too far gone. I have been able to keep some other ones under control by, you know, what I do is I spray it off with water first just to get rid of all the insects. And then I've been using neem oil quite a bit. I haven't added any peppermint oil into my neem oil mixture this year. And that's actually worked really well against the aphids, the spider mites, and really helped keep some of the very beginning plants that had very beginning stages of powdery mildew pretty much under control. But basically, I've been going through and pruning a lot of things because we're getting ready to head out on vacation. So I want to get all the disease under control before I go, because I know when I get back after being gone for a couple weeks, you know, I'm going to probably be hit pretty hard with diseases and with pests. So really trying to do that preventative spraying before we take off.
0: Now, is your deck constructed, or is that something that's going to be done while you're gone?
1: No, I wish. We haven't had a chance to start on that yet, and we're trying to kind of get the ideas that we want you know, in mind and do a lot of research, but the biggest challenge for me is I'm going to have to be relocating a lot of plants um, during the construction, but some actually permanently, and one of my favorites I'm actually kind of sad about is the blackberry bushes. They're right underneath where we're going to be bumping out the deck. So I need to find a new spot in the garden for them. So I don't know how well they're going to do, you know, moving them. I'm going to wait till they go dormant and then, you know, find a good spot for them. So, you know, we'll kind of see how that goes. But, you know, we'll hopefully be able to record a lot of our progress on our YouTube channel so people can tune in for that.
0: Well, it'll be exciting when it's all done. Yeah, it is exciting. Now, Jesse has a question for us. um, And that could be he or she. Uh, What is the best way to do crop rotation in raised beds? And is there any plant that doesn't need to be planted into bed that doesn't need to be planted into bed after any other plant? Thank you. So crop rotation is really useful if you have a really big space. And I would probably venture to say, if you have like an acre, two acres, three acres, four acres, where you're growing you know tomatoes on one side, and they grow there a while and then you move them completely to the other side of your acreage and same with other crops. And the reason you do that is one for uh, the fertilizer nutrition, but also that when bugs and disease kind of move in, they kind of tend to hang out where these plants have been. So you're moving them in a smaller garden where you don't have that much space. um, I have two acres here with the house and everything, even that isn't a full two acre garden. So my garden moving my tomato plants and rotating to the other side of the garden, isn't going to do a whole lot. The diseases and the pests are going to find them. So it's really about space. If you're going to rotate. The other thing is that I don't, I'm not aware of any specific plant that can't follow another plant. If you're kind of growing potatoes and it's a heavy feeder and it's pulling out a lot of, um, phosphorus, potassium, and stuff like that, then you just want to replace it before you put in other plants. But I'm not aware of any specific pattern that you can't do with, you know, certain plants when you're planting
1: yeah, I'm not really too aware of that either. And I'd say, as far as crop rotation goes, you know, I just don't have the space to really be able to do that. But I do like to kind of mix things up a little bit. I think just maybe to keep, you know, just kind of vary the way things look in the garden from year to year. So that I guess that could kind of be a form of crop rotation. But I always do look at, too, like where my plants are getting shaded out from one year to the next, and then either try and trim the trees or adjust where I plant certain vegetables to kind of help with that. But I think as long as you're amending your soil, You know, every time you plant um, in a smaller type of garden, um, really crop rotation isn't a big issue. Now, was there a question there about rabbits? I'm sorry, that's the next question, actually. (laughs) Uh, So let me go ahead and read that. So this is from Bountiful Curls. What is the best soil mix for strawberries? This is actually a three-part question, Mm -hmm. maybe a four-part question. What is the best way to keep rabbits out of your garden? What is a safe, non-toxic spray combo for veggies? And how to deal with ants? So, wow, that's a loaded question there hmm And I'll take the strawberry one first. Um, I love to grow strawberries and I grow them primarily in containers and in strawberry crate towers. So I like to stack a couple uh, crates, like three crates high. And there's a liner that I put in them that smart pots makes it's a fabric liner. And I pretty much use the same type of mix that I use in my containers. Um, I use an organic potting mix called good dirt. And I know you there's a lot of uh, recipes out there for DIY mixes as well. But I think as long as it has good drainage and has good uh, water retention type properties, it works well for strawberries because I really do like that good drainage. And then again, pretty much the same principles that we've been teaching, you know, you throw in the granular fertilizer, um, you have your water soluble fertilizer, and you keep them, you know, in containers, especially well fertilized every two weeks throughout the growing season. So that's worked um, pretty well for me so far.
0: Best way to keep rabbits out of your garden is really a fence. Um, They're skittish, so they're not going to really try and dig or break through. But if you leave an open space, they will find their way and they'll squeeze into there. Um, just plain old chicken wire um, that's about two feet high will keep rabbits out, believe it or not. They're not going to really want to hop over that. Um, but a fence is the best way to, to go about that. The other thing that you can do is instead of you know setting up a fence around the perimeter of wherever you're growing, I've done this before where I'll put, um, say, leafy greens or radishes or my spring garden going stuff that rabbits like. And I will actually then lay the chicken wire across where I planted the seeds. The plants will come up through the chicken wire. They don't like to walk on that because their feet get caught, you know, in the holes of the chicken wire. They're very skittish. So they're not going to go under that because they don't want to be trapped. They're not going to want to walk on it. So you can actually lay chicken wire across a four by eight space, grow through that. And that does tend to keep the rabbits away.
1: And the next part of this question is, what is a safe, non-toxic spray combo for veggies? And one thing I've used in the past, and I know you use this as well, Gary, is a good combination of a neem oil, peppermint oil, and then rosemary oil. The neem oil really helps, you know, control, disrupts the life cycle of the chewing and sucking insects. And I'm assuming that this is for insect control. Um, and then the peppermint and the rosemary oil, uh, they don't like the scent of it. So that helps repel the insects as well.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of non-toxic sprays, um, and you can kind of research and, and kind of pick ones you like. The most important thing is to pick what you're comfortable with, and then just keep a routine in place. So you want to start spraying early before the problems come, and just keep that routine up. It's not always so much the spray; it's more the gardener's routine. So Tom says, "What do you think uh, of back to back to Eden gardening? Garden? Oh yeah, <laughs> the back to Eden." Gardening method, which we talked a little bit about. I think it's a really good method, and it kind of mimics how things fall in a forest. Um, when you're first setting it up, if your wood chips are too large, um, it can be a problem. So you want smaller wood chips, in my opinion. You can drop down six inches, eight inches of wood chips to start, but you you're not growing directly in the wood chips. Keep in mind that this is an ongoing way to garden. So over the years. That breaks down, you add more wood chips, that breaks down, you add more wood chips, that breaks down. And eventually, you can just part the wood chips, and you're growing right into that because it's all broken down. It's a nice, slow feed, and you get really massive plants that way. When you're first starting out, you may have to move the wood chips to get to the earth to plant your tomato plants and other things Um you can't really plant, you know, radishes in it right away, so you're going to need some sort of soil. So it's a plan. Don't feel like, you know, once you put the wood chips down, you plant everything you want and everything grows. It won't. But over time it becomes a wonderful way to grow a garden. And
1: I think but you what, might what you might want to try is maybe try one bed with the back to Eden method, see if you like it, see how it does that year, and then, you know, kind of adjust the following year based on how that garden bed turned out. And why do we So our next yeah, take question. Care of next question, yep. Yeah. Okay, our next question is from Zaino And uh, this person says, electricity in my country is quite expensive. So starting hot peppers is a bit of a challenge without a heat mat. I've managed to start sweet peppers and medium heat chili using a paper towel method, but I've had no luck with hot peppers. Any ideas on how to start them without a heat mat?
0: So, I mean, you're going to need really... 75 degree Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is in Celsius, but you're going to need that temperature to get good germination. The hot peppers seem to take longer to germinate and they can take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. So even at my house, when I'm, you know, germinating at about 72 degrees Fahrenheit, they take longer. If I use a heat mat, push it up to 80, that can make a difference. There's no way to really get around that.
1: Um, You know, some warmer parts of the house, um, I know when I first started uh, gardening, um, I would put them on top of my refrigerator because the refrigerator generated a little bit of heat or set them on top of the dryer, you know, when the dryer is running. However, you know, they really like that consistent heat underneath. So, you know, if you can find an area where you get a little bit more heat in your house, that might help, but it's definitely going to take a little bit longer.
0: And let's, and I, I apologize for interrupting you on the last question. It's okay. So let's take our last question from Isra. Is it okay uh, to put cherry tomatoes in compost, which turn brown because of cold weather? Uh, yes. Um, and I think we were saying that earlier. Like I don't, I put just about everything into my compost pile um, and I don't worry about it because of the disease diseases and pests tend to kind of hang around anyway. Um, but something that kind of browns out because of the cold weather is perfectly fine to put into your compost pile.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not a problem at all. Well, these questions have been amazing today. We really appreciate you guys sending them in. If you want to send in questions for a future podcast, you can do that over at gardeningcoasttocoast.net. There's a little contact form there at the bottom of the page where you can write in your question. And we will hopefully be able to get to them in a future podcast. You can also go to the Gardening Coast to Coast Facebook group. That's a great place to get your questions answered, get support. There's gardeners there from all over the world. And I think it's maybe around, what, like Thirty thousand gardeners strong now, Gary. Yeah, something, something of people. like that. Yeah. So it's really fun if- to be able to post your, you know, your pictures of your garden issue that you're having, and get your garden questions questions answered fairly quickly. You know, one thing I did want to bring in before we talk about our next podcast topic is just don't be afraid to ask questions. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, we're all learning. You know, Gary and I are not experts on every topic, and I know me—I learn stuff every day. I learn a lot of things from our viewers and listeners, so don't be afraid to just dig in there, ask your questions, and there's no failures. There's only learning experiences.
0: I would agree with that. Um, I still learn after doing this for thirty years. There's always something new to learn, and you know, strike up a conversation, you know, with people and ask questions and. You know, see what comes of that. So our next podcast, we're going to take a deeper dive into fall gardening, talk more about crops that can go in. But also if you're, you know, burned out from the summer and you want to put your bed to rest, uh, we'll talk about how to put your garden beds to rest, how to freshen up your containers, uh, put them to rest and just, you know, maybe get ready for next spring.
1: That's right. We really want to thank you guys for tuning in to our podcast. We are having a lot of fun recording these, looking forward to the next session And we are very thankful that you all are listening and checking out the net website. And we look forward to seeing you or having you listen on the next podcast.
0: Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.
1: Bye-bye.